Hello and welcome to Dyslexia Explore. Today we are going to explore dyslexia and social entrepreneurship. I met with the head of funding for the impact department of Alias, which is a huge fund dedicated to social entrepreneurship in the UK through a connection of a previous podcast guest, Harriet Kalsal. And we had this great conversation about social entrepreneurship and how to adapt training and nurturing environment for people with dyslexia in the as social entrepreneurs. And so what I decided to do was, hey, this is such a great conversation. We've got to get it onto the podcast. And Shelley brought in Marina, who is the program uh, coordinator in charge of running the, the, the program that Alias does to encourage social entrepreneurship. She's got a history in venture capital, AI-powered venture capital, worked with founders in that, and then found a passion for helping social entrepreneurs and so joined the Alias team. So today we're going to have a great conversation with Shelley Gregory-Jones and Marina Pritchard. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for having us. We've been trying to have this conversation for months now, and our diaries have been overlapping. And I'm really excited about this conversation because, you know, entrepreneurship is one of the key traits of people with dyslexia. Lots of people with dyslexia end up going into an entrepreneurial environment, and also many of them become intrapreneurs as well. So let's make sure we're thinking about both um, for the listeners. And I think it would just be really great if we could lay the, the landscape of where this whole conversation has been started and where we want to take it to in this podcast. So Shelley, why don't you tell us a little bit about Alias and give the listeners a bit of an overview of what Alias is, does, and what your goal is. Yeah, thank you, Darius. That's, um, it's, it really is very exciting to be here. And as you say, it, this conversation has been a long time coming. And I think, and in the time it's taken, we've, we've kind of warmed it up and talked about lots of interesting things. So, so yeah, so Alia is a it is a, is a charity, essentially, and it's an organisation that has lots of different parts. It's got um, some social finance, it's got, it, it offers workspace, but the part that Marina and I work for is Alia Impact, and our work centres around helping entrepreneurs, uh, whether they're social entrepreneurs, whether they're local businesses, whether they're charities, to bring their businesses to life. And Marina will talk a bit more about the actual programs and how that works and how we try and build a community around these people who participate in these courses to give them confidence and skills and knowledge so that they can ultimately be successful in their business passion. And I think that in trying to do that, I think we've realized that, as you say, dyslexia is something that's correlated very strongly with, with very strong entrepreneurial skills. And, and that's brought us to this conversation because we want to make sure that the communities we're creating are accessible and helpful to everybody in terms of not just kind of leveling the playing field for actually unlocking people's talents so that they can really do their best work. Just to um, go on that point, what we're trying to do is exactly that, just make sure that people are tapping into their talents and their potential through the programmes as well and facilitating that, that entrepreneurship. And so, Marina, could you tell us a little bit about your particular role? Sure. So um, I'm programme manager at Ania, 
Um, I've been at Alia for over a year now. And basically my role is, is trying to organize um, and coordinate the programs that we do run internally across Cambridgeshire and London. So those are the two, two areas that we uh, focus on. And so I run a variety of programs, uh, one being a Start Your Business program, which is for newly found entrepreneurs that are just looking to validate a business idea. And then a Grow Your Business program, which is more for local businesses or maybe entrepreneurs that have been going for a while, potentially have reached a wall when it comes to their growth. And they're looking for some help to sort of break down those barriers and those walls and, and scale even further and maybe grow into new locations. And a lot of the time it is also about mindset. So just helping entrepreneurs think about what the entrepreneurial mindset is and also just connecting with like minded people um, that really can get them motivated um, into do, doing something more. So really that's what we're trying to do within the programs essentially is to build up this uh, entrepreneurial um, ecosystem, um, this place where entrepreneurs feel safe to share uh, their knowledge, their experiences with each other and really see the potential and see the the positives of working together and collaborating with each other to sort of bring their ideas into fruition. So we're just trying to build an environment where as all feel comfortable to do that. And that's why accessibility is very important and just making sure that we are, are adapt and, and um, make the programs approachable for anybody. And so that's really what our mission is, just to make our programs as accessible as possible to dyslexic founders or more generally neuro neurodiverse founders and their learning styles just to make sure that they also get the most out of any of our programs. Yeah and I came into the mix because Shelley you and I started having this informal conversation about you know how do you make a training program dyslexia friendly and then we started to get into this conversation which is like, what do you mean by dyslexia friendly? Because there's like, you could put some dyslexia font on, you could, you know, do some sort of superficial kind of accessibility stuff. But then there's another aspect, which is, is the heart of what you're trying to do to actually speak to the core unique abilities of people with dyslexia, or are you just making the general thing accessible to everyone? And, and both have their merits. And, and our conversation was going between the two and we were exploring it all. And, and at that point, I just thought, you know, we need to take this onto the podcast because there's a ton of other people who are doing similar things to you and individual entrepreneurs, as well as people running small startups or incubators. So what I think it's useful to to paint the landscape here. You've got incubators as well, like co-working spaces and so on that you manage as well. Is that correct? That's right. So so we have, as as Marina said, we're based in Cambridgeshire and London. So we've got what we call our future business centers in Cambridge and in Peterborough and in East London. And that sort of dovetails with the training that we provide. So a lot of people who come through our courses may eventually end up working using our co-working spaces either as individuals or as groups and that's a nice way of actually all together so yeah the, the workspaces are very important and I think for this conversation as well because I, I, as we learn more about what neurodivergent people and particularly dys dyslexic people need 
Um, I think we will think about the, not just the training that we offer, but also how the space works as well. So we know that we've got a lot to learn and, and it's going to be all those things to kind of provide a full service to people. Yeah. Okay. Well, now we've got the big picture. And one of the questions I tend to ask in the podcast is what was your wake up call to dyslexia in your own life or in your dyslexia story? So some people have that wake up call from the outside, their parent or a business person, and they see the dyslexia affecting someone in their, in their life. What was your wake up call to this whole world of how dyslexia can affect you in the workplace? Can I start, Marina? Yeah, go for it, Sean. I think what's interesting about, about Marina's experience and my experience is, is kind of our different paths to this. So I think, as as, as you mentioned, Darius, at the beginning, I have a, a wonderful friend called Harriet Kelsall, who I've known for, for several years. And it was her story that really opened up this, this whole area to me. So for those of you who, who haven't heard Harriet's podcast before, she's an incredibly talented jeweler and a most extraordinary businesswoman. And as we, as she was telling me about her jewelry business and how it's succeeded and how it's flourished and how she's winning all these awards and, and how she's providing services that really no one's ever provided before. It, she started to tell me about the, the, how, about her own dyslexic journey, about her daughter's dyslexic journey. And it became very clear to me that what made, uh, that what makes Harriet very special is, is very much her dyslexia and how it makes her think differently, how she, she describes it as sort of three-dimensional thinking. And knowing her as a friend, as well as a businesswoman, I can see that in every aspect of her life. And her unusualness actually contributes hugely to her success. So that was the first thing that really sort of animated me to, to get this done. And we've talked about this a lot and saying this is about the fact that many, many dyslexics are, have these characteristics and make quite extraordinary business people. So, so that was one thing that when I came to Alia, I thought, this, I really want to get involved in this. And I suppose the second thing that, is that you mentioned, Darius, is I have, a bit, I have a background in working with um, visually impaired people and blind people in Cambridge. And I was always very aware that I think, as, as you mentioned, you can either take this route of just trying to kind of level up things and make accessibility the kind of core of how you get people into workspaces or you can actually try and be more creative with this and think about people in the round and think about how they can really flourish environments. If you really think about what makes people succeed in places. So, so it's a kind of silly little example, but when we were working with blind people in, in Cambridge, we would go to restaurants and people would say, well, okay, we can make these menus braille. And it's like, no, that's not what people want. They, what they really want you is to talk you through the menu and actually have a conversation with you about the food because that's what people that makes their experience fuller and I think it was just those sort of examples made me think that just making things leveled up is not enough you've really got to go the full length and and try and make these experiences full for people especially in your environment where if you can make an entrepreneur succeed or the difference between an entrepreneur succeeding and failing is significant in that the benefits entrepreneurs bring to this world are are huge. I was just going to say, especially social entrepreneurs, because they're you know they're having a global impact, positive global impact, and just building a better future for us all. So anything we can do to sort of enable and facilitate that is really important. And then in terms of my side, so I actually wasn't aware enough of it, I think, in my previous uh, working experiences and also at university. It, it was a topic that 
remained under the radar, um, although I, I knew about it, sort of wasn't talked or discussed uh, enough about. And I think coming into um, Alia um, has opened my eyes because as a team, we're, we're very open and actually Shelley helped me a lot in terms of learning about neurodivergence within founders and also having worked closely with neurodivergent founders within um, our programs and, and providing them with coaching, sort of opened my eyes even more of, of, of this and sort of how to make the programs that we're running better as well. So let's take the topic of if you were, how do we frame this? Let's frame this conversation as if we're coming to this afresh, new, okay? Let's pretend that you as the head, Shelley, and you, Marina, as the head of programming, and I got together and there's this question in front of us is, how do we help entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs with dyslexia through our programs? Now, that doesn't necessarily mean our courses. It can be everything from within the workplace, within the way we do events, and how, how do we help people with dyslexia? So that's really the big topic today, isn't it? I think it's a lot about offering that personalized I think that's why the coaching sessions that we do provide are so valuable because we can sit with that other person, we can really get to know them as a person, get to understand their struggles, you know, what's keeping them up at night when it comes to their entrepreneurship journey. Mm -hmm. And for every one of us, it's slightly different. But what I thought that found interesting is actually there's lots of shared struggles, especially in the entrepreneurship journey and and just being able to have that that conversation with somebody else and, and learning about them I think is the first step into you know really understanding it and then the second thing and just in terms of the content I think we've already done a lot of things to try making the content and the work that we do more accessible but I think maybe providing content that's more visual. So for example, we do a lot of work on business model canvassing. So enabling us to plot down the business model canvas on, uh, on a visual representation, which um, gives everybody a better understanding of, of kind of the in, in intricacies of the business. And then some other activities that we've implemented, like uh, a really fun postcard activity that Shelley has been a part of as well. So we ask we ask people to go and um, pick up a postcard and share uh, share with the room sort of how they relate to that image. And people respond so well to that. It's a really very, very powerful little exercise. I've, I've watched Marina do that a couple of times. It's great. It's a great way to get people talking with each other, I think, because there's always, with anybody that's new, don't know each other in a room, there's always going to be a need for an icebreaker or something to get people finding something relatable with with each other and that's sort of our our way within our launch the launches of our program to to get people to start having those deeper conversations and I'm always really amazed how how much people are willing to share even very personal experiences with people that they've never met before which I think is is really lovely so anything we can do more you know any more activities I don't Darius, if you have any recommendations, but anything else in that sort of level that, that we could utilize. 
Let me just go through those three for starters. You know, the one-to-one coaching, is that something that you do, Marina? Yes, so that's part of our program. So we give all the program participants an opportunity to have a one-to-one coaching session with an earlier team member once a month for the duration of the program. And they also can book follow-up calls with us post-program as well uh, once they're part of our alumni. And that coaching session is an opportunity for us to see how they're doing in their business as well, sort of maybe who could we connect them with so enable that networking side of things so who do we know for example within Cambridge that we could connect to this person to the entrepreneur the social entrepreneur to get them to create a new partnership I don't know grow their product and and we're sort of yeah that, that coaching session is an enabler and it's a very relaxed conversation it's a safe space it's a place where we're just hoping that the, the founder feels comfortable enough to share what they're going through. And how long is the program? Is it a year or? So the ones that I'm working on, so we've got the Start Your Business program, which lasts um, two months, and then the Grow Your Business program, which lasts three months. We have got an impact accelerator as well. So that's a slightly longer program that lasts six months. But yeah, the ones I work on are about two to three months in length. Okay, great. Building on on what Marina was saying about the the opportunities to get people to come together, I think one of the things that came out of a conversation, our last conversation, Darius, was about this sort of obviously helping people as individuals, but sort of working to kind of promote collaboration because I think there are some wonderful things that can happen when people sort of collaborate and then swap their skills around and. Um, I, I know this again from my experience with Harriet, is that when we've wanted to do things together, I will sometimes act as, as, as kind of a, as her writing arm and she comes up with all these amazing ideas. And But there's there are little things that I can add that kind of help make the project a little bit more workable. And I think doing that kind of thing, and I think I know Marina's going to talk about this because she's very interested in this idea, but how technologies can sort of perhaps help that too. I think what we'd love to see with this community is people helping each other and bringing their amazing skills to kind of collaborations as well. I think one thing I'd say on that as well is that the world of business as we know it has changed. I think, you know, it's more about collaboration over competition. And I always try to promote that because I feel like you can get so much more out of a room of people who are willing to help each other and collaborate with each other over a group of people who are fighting trying to win, you know, being secretive, not sharing information. So, yeah, I think on this point of what Shelley is saying about collaboration and, again, building that safe space where people can come together, share their experiences and see, you know, every person has something very valuable to share. And actually that's motivating in itself when you say that actually anyone's perspective, no matter how old they are, where they come from, you know, how much business experience they have, they could have a really interesting view on something or or a way of seeing something that we've never thought of before. And that's really what we're trying to do through maybe some of the activities that we get the founders to do together to see the value of that sort of peer-to-peer support. I think think neurodivergent people have a, a, a really strong strand there. I think what they can bring to this process that, that, that Marina helps is, is very powerful. And I think we'd like, that's one of the things we 
we're kind of having this conversation about is like, how do we get that out? How do we get that into the room? How do we make sure that people don't? We want people to sort of say, well, as someone who, who has experiences dyslexia, I see the world like this. And and this is and I would come at this problem like that. That so to be able to have those conversations going on comfortably in, in our courses would be incredibly powerful, I think. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com, which helps you organize yourself creatively with a productivity system for Apple devices. So let's just, we talked a lot about the advantages of dyslexia here, but I think it might be useful to identify some pain points within the process. And, and Marina, maybe you, as someone who's just come into the program and observed the program as it is, and it's been running for quite a while already, and you've kind of adopted that, and now you're kind of thinking, I wonder if we could improve this, enhance this, adapt this. You're in that kind of phase. It's quite a, a sweet spot because you've had a good spell of time to get to know what's actually there and are starting to adapt. But now you're into that phase of, I know what we've got and I now need to start adapting certain things and enhancing certain things. So in your experience, what would you see are particular pain points that maybe entrepreneurs with dyslexia and Let's just narrow it down to dyslexia, because when we talk about neurodivergence, we're maybe talking about autism, we're maybe talking about ADHD, dyslexia, and dyspraxia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia, mm -hmm. and there's a whole range of other difficulties that are potentially there within the entrepreneurs that are coming in. But let's just narrow the focus, not because dyslexia is the most important, but because it's just really useful to have a case example because a lot of these are transferable principles that can go into other realms so what do you see as the main pain points potentially i think it's that absorbing of content i think you know we're in a world of over content over stimulation just everything's going on and it's very difficult to sort of bring that theory into action and i think that's where i've seen a lot of pain points is that okay you know, you've got all this content, you might have all these resources, but actually how digestible is that information for somebody that has dyslexia, for example? Um, and that, that that is my worry. That's, you know, the, the more, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about technologies as well and artificial intelligence, um, but with the emergence of these new technologies, with the increased uh, amount of uh, misinformation and over content stimulation as well, sort of what does that mean for somebody with dyslexia? And so trying to think of ways how to make that content as digestible as possible is, is I think, a, a solution to that. But yeah, I'd say the main pain point that I've seen from, from maybe content programs is, is that. Can you give us maybe some examples from clients you've had, you know, entrepreneurs, maybe some things that they've maybe said and so on that maybe listeners could resonate with? Yeah, I think I think sort of the main feedback that we've gotten is 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 this fact about how we have all that theory. We each week we have different workshops on different topics, you know, from sales, marketing, funding, financing business model and after that you know what the so what so okay 
I've I've read and I've listened to all of this information, but so what? How can I actually action that into my own business? And that there is that difficulty there. And and I think people with dyslexia might have even more of a barrier to that. So being able to translate that theory into action. And so that's some of the feedback that I that I have gotten from our existing program. So we're sort of trying to work through that by putting in place more, more clinics, more in-person clinics, uh, where we can do more of that peer-to-peer support and collaboration activities. And, and yeah, having that sort of focus on that, those coaching sessions as well to sort of go back to the content that you've learned that month or that week and think about, okay, how can I actually implement that into my own business? Step-by-step, very clear, concise, information not over technical not overwhelming because you know as soon as it gets overwhelming you stop in your tracks and and you lose motivation that just stops you from from doing anything or taking any action so trying to prevent that from happening okay Uh, thank you that's really helpful to clarify that how long have you been doing business model canvas for example so we've actually been doing business model canvas since the inception of our programs. Myself, I, I started doing it when I joined Andia. So I was quite new to the business model canvas approach. I do think it's very interesting because it sort of combines content, visual, and it's, it's it's a good way of putting information about a business on paper and trying to think of all the different areas of, or the nine key components of, of your business. But I am new to it. I'm always learning. We're, we're willing to change as well. It's not necessarily completely the right content piece for all future programs. We might decide to completely get rid of business model canvas because I feel like everybody's doing it nowadays. Is there a completely new approach, a new way of uh, visually um, documenting a business that might be more useful, more, more approachable, more, more concise? than what we've been using so so yeah that's there's a stage I'm at is just wanting to learn iterate improve well, on. I've got something to say about business model canvas but over to you if you've got anything to chip in at the moment I think what what I find fascinating is thinking about the fact that I did an MBA um, back in 2006-2007 and and things like the business model canvas were sort of seen as very kind of very full of fancy things to do because everything was so text-based. We had to read these Harvard business examples. We had, I mean, really the stacks and stacks of information. Mm. And looking back on that now in the context of what, what I know about people with dyslexia and what I know about how Alia does these things, I hope one of the things I do hope really is that by kind of working towards better ways of doing it at Alia, we can perhaps share the love a bit and kind of look backwards at some of those other organizations where they just take it there. They take a very academic approach to these things. And, and I really don't feel that people who are genuinely entrepreneurial will get a great deal out of reading tomes and tomes. I think the way that we're, we're trying to get to is much better. So that's yeah, I think there's room to grow and room to show other people as well. Yeah, one thing I'd say on that is definitely the, the academic approach doesn't necessarily work for everybody. And there's much more value from learning from actually somebody who's been a founder before, for example. So 
bringing in speakers, other founders to sort of share their experiences, what they wish they'd done differently. There's so much more value in that, I think. So like learning from conversations over reading a massive text of, of, or a huge paper yeah. is very theoretical, but actually, you know, going back to that point, so what, you know, it doesn't actually, it's not, it's, it's can't impact your business because you have to do all that work in translating all of that. Yes. So really what we're talking about here is going from theory to practice, from thinking to action. And the theory is academic. You know, you what really in, encompasses all of the theory side is that academic MBA side. And then the practical application side, I think business model canvas pretty much nails that whole practical application side, because I think this is a really useful little case study for people who are listening. You know, like if you've never experienced business model canvas, it's a business plan on one page. Okay. You've got one horizontal page and it's split into nine little boxes and it all visually flows from one box to another box. And you can see your customer relationship to your client base and your unique offering and all sorts of different component parts that are essential in any sophisticated business plan, but they've distilled it into one visual page. Now, comparing that to maybe a five-page, 10-page, 50-page business plan that's written in, in list form, that really encapsulates for me where when you're playing to the strengths of the entrepreneur. So with business model canvas, you're drawing pictures in them. You've got arrows going different places. You've got, you're working in keywords, key concepts, single ideas, rather than big bodies of paragraphs or clarifications or massive SWOT analysis and, and so forth. You're really getting it down to the pithy core of, you know, what's our value offering, who are our clients, et cetera. And for me, that comparison is a very useful comparison to the academic approach versus the visual practical approach. And I think often the visual approach is very close to being a practical approach. So that was the first thing I was thinking about. Have you heard of the flipped classroom model by any chance? So you, you might be fascinated by that. I, I'm fascinated by this. I think it's incredible. So the flipped classroom model is flip, as in you flip something back to front, okay? And different levels of doing this approach, but some universities have completely converted over to a flipped classroom model. So here's how it works. In a traditional classroom approach, you get taught by the teacher from the front a piece of information. And then you go home and you do a practical project piece of homework where you practice it, okay? But the flipped classroom model flips that on its head. It says, we will record the one-to-one -one teaching bit, which you will watch at home beforehand. And when you come into the classroom, we will have a project for you, and you will do the project with the supervision of the expert there. So instead of wasting the expert's time saying the same thing over and over again, we'll record it, give it to you, get the big picture, come into the classroom or into the room, the learning space, and we'll give you a project. 
to apply that knowledge to. And this is how they do the application of the knowledge. This is sublime for me anyway. As a teacher myself, I, I would love to do this. So here's what happens. You walk in the door and they give you a one-minute test, okay? It's not a test on the subject. It's a test on whether you've watched the video or not, okay? So it's just some very basic things. Is this true? Is that true? Is that true? And, and the only way you'd know is if you've watched the video, but it doesn't matter. It's not testing your knowledge of the subject. If you've not watched the video, you have to go into an ante room with the video and you sit there and you watch the video and that's all you do. If you have watched the video, you go in to the group setting, okay? Because they don't want anyone who doesn't know what they're talking about in the group setting because they'll just pull the whole experience down. Mm -hmm. We've all experienced those people who are like, oh, what's that all about? What's that all about? Go learn this stuff and then we can be useful here. So get lost. And so they go into that room and they learn their lesson. They better watch that video before they come in. Otherwise, they're, they're not welcome. And I thought that's pretty impressive. So you walk that's into right. the room and there's like four or five tables. OK, and there's maybe you're divided into groups of three or four. OK, and then you're all given exactly the same assignment. OK, and there isn't one defined answer. OK, so it's like here's a practical application of what you learn. Let's say we, there was a lesson on business model canvas, okay? And there's a video about business model canvas. And then there's six tables, each with a big business model canvas sheet out there. And they're all told, we want you to create a business model for this scenario, which is there's this new product. Here's the product that you're going to sell. And you've got to figure out what the customer is. There's, we just invented this particular gizmo or imported it from China, okay? And here's the item. Now you're going to sell it and find out a way to market it and sell it and so on, okay? Now, the point I'm making here, why I'm being so, so specific, is that everyone has the same project. And you're given like a one-hour or a two-hour time frame to really get stuck into this, okay? Halfway through the teacher or the lecturer or the expert stops everyone and everyone goes round each one of the tables and looks at their solution to the same problem. And you wow. see another team and you go, oh, that's clever. And yeah. then you go, oh, I didn't like that. We're better than that. And oh, I like that. And so on. You go around and you share what you've got with everyone else, right? And then for the second half, you're allowed to take anything anyone else has and incorporate it into your solution. Okay. Oh, Marina, I can see you doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you incorporate it in and then you all, the uh, expert, the trainer, what they, at the end, you look at each other's solutions and they're not all the same. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, oh, wow, I love how you ran with that and incorporated that. Oh, that's fascinating how you did that and so on. And you'll learn it because you're so immersed in it yourself. You can appreciate what other people in the group have done rather than a completely different project, which is the standard approach, a different project where you can't completely relate to it because you've not been absorbed in it. Do you know what I mean? You're more superficial understanding. Yeah. But you can see the depth of, oh, that was a very clever cost reduction in your outputtings. And that's a really good collaboration with this kind of company or that software or whatever and what's the role of the expert in that scenario is the fascinating thing so the expert goes around all the groups and gets sits watches them and go and and joins in and says, 
oh no, you didn't quite get what I was saying about the business model canvas training in the video. This is what I was meaning. Oh gosh, yeah, great, got it. Go to another one. Oh yeah, you've got this, but oh, watch out for that. You, you, you're maybe not quite getting that or you've overlooked this. And so that's the value of having an expert come in and actually using technology to your advantage. Because here we can now do the flipped classroom model because we get the expert doing the video one off, record them, put it beforehand. And then the expert is there to truly enjoy the joy of helping other people apply it and making it into action. That's that's amazing. Reversing the whole workshop concept. Yeah. You know, right now with our speakers, we I mean, we tend to get the same speakers coming in for our programs and we have very little time at the end usually to pick q a so wow darius i'll definitely look yeah. into that and uh, <laughs> sounds like a really interesting approach i think we we kind of do it in the sense that we're trying to do clinics which are post uh the mm -hmm. workshops so post theory to, and we've got someone going around the program participants to talk them through or maybe give them some additional support but um definitely if we could combine more self-paced learning initially so that there's no repetition when it comes to the content and then we should go into um as quickly as possible actually being there to support and because that's what's motivating i mean that's that's what i love about my job and i'm sure that's what the venture support team love the most is really actually being there having those conversations and just seeing that collaboration happen I think that's what I love yeah. to see in terms of group work as well that's which is highly motivating because people that don't know each other very well all of a sudden have this mission or this shared thing that they're working towards and suddenly you'll just see all these amazing ideas coming about and, and yeah definitely sounds great and I love that and I think what I really like about it is that I know that Marina would do that incredibly well because I think you're just so open to these ideas and I know how excited you get about these ideas and it's very much kind of taking us forward in our own direction with an amazing idea. That is an amazing idea. I love it. Thank you. My pleasure. It's not my idea, but I, I heard oh, it. And you. I'm, thank I'm you for totally explaining it and sharing it. I enamored think that's by it. Yes. And I think if, if we look at the analyze that and look at it from a pedagogical point of view, from a understanding of how you are teaching and learning, you know, that's what pedagogy means. What's happening in that environment is you've watched the video, the lecture on the topic. Now, for some people, that's not enough. Okay. Especially with dyslexia. It's like, all right, I, I, I hear it. I've got it. I, I heard it. But the deal is with the flipped classroom model is you don't have to understand it. You don't have to feel like you've studied it and know it. You just have to watch the overview so you've got the understanding. And that this experience of doing it together is not the test. It's not a test. It's a learning mm -hmm. moment, you know, where you're learning together and then it is conversational. You're having conversations with one another. You're having conversation with the trainer. And you're saying, yeah, we've been thinking about this. And I remember it said that on the video. I never quite understood it, but now I get it. But I, I don't quite get this bit. What about this component and so on? And the teacher can zoom in on a particular confusion or pain point, And it's coming through conversation or just observation of other people doing it. I mean, even going round, you look at 
all of your learning styles that you've got there, okay? You've got visual, you've got interactive, you've got conversational, you've got observational, you've got kinesthetic learning, you know, because you're doing stuff together, you're around a table, auditory, you know, text is probably in there in the video and so on. There's just a whole range of different sort of learning styles being adapted. And the more you can multimodally teach something or experience something, the more integrated your memory and experience of it is. So I think that's a kind of really, when you're saying dyslexia friendly, it could have been that you had that same experience and there was a transcript down the bottom or or there were some pictures in the video or something like that, mm-hmm. or the uh, slideshow instead of just a talking head. But when you're speaking truly about what drives a person whose brain is attuned into dyslexia, you know, basically our brains are configured slightly differently than other people. We're configured to constantly solve problems, constantly solve problems, because our brains are constantly manually coding and decoding and coding and decoding information, whereas other people are doing automatically. They're on autopilot, which is why we find it hard to learn to read because we're constantly intentionally decoding a word and then recoding it, decoding it, and so on. Whereas other people learn the words a few times and they're like, yeah, that word says photosynthesis, whereas someone else at photosynthesis got it, okay. And it seems like they're automatic, but they're very manually going through the gears very fast, but it's still very intentional. Now, what that does is it makes us good at doing all sorts of things very intentionally. It can be exhausting doing everything intentionally, going through every process very intentionally, but it makes us highly tuned to when a process is working and when a process isn't working and what might be a better process. And often that's the heart of entrepreneurship because you're kind of like, here's this problem. I've figured out a way, a process of delivering a product or a service that can solve this that's better than the existing one. And maybe there's a clever idea within there that makes it 10x better than the existing one. And so it means the people using the existing one are willing to move over to the 10x thing. And and we're doing that all the time. And so when you get around a table and you're discussing an actual solution to something, then you get into that unique ability. For those people who have often been alienated by the academic lecture stuff, so let's look at it, okay? 80% academic lecture stuff, 20% practical Q&A or practical application. What if you Mm. flip that? And it was 20% academic and 80% practical, then they would shine. And that's the reality of why so many people with dyslexia shine in the real world, because the real world is about not what you're thinking or not what you're saying. It's like, what you're doing? Show me the money. Show me what you're doing. Show me the action. Let the ball do the talking. Have you heard that thing, that phrase in football? It's like, there's lots of people in football that are like, kind of like, oh, I can do this. I can do that. And then the coach goes along and says, let, let the ball do the talking, you know, <laughs> just let the ball do the talking. And you go out there and let the ball do the talking. And that, it did, did it get in the goal? If it got in the goal, the ball's done the talking. You don't need to brag you know? And so 
in that flipped classroom model, we've given a chance for the ball to do the talking. That is amazing. Shall I blow your mind with another idea? Oh, go on then. Okay, try <laughs> And you might have heard of this one as well. Have you heard of the World Cafe conference concept? Okay, so here's another interesting concept about flipping the way people think about learning and doing a conference, okay? So we've all been to a conference where there's the speaker up on stage, talks for an hour and, or maybe 20 minutes or whatever, and then there's breaks in between time. And often it's in the breaks and the breakout rooms and so on that really interesting stuff happens, okay? So these designers, we're having this experience going through this and they decided, do you know what? The best part of a conference is the bit in between times, isn't it? And they said, what if we designed a conference with no speakers and we just had it all in between times? And they're like, how would that work? Okay, really work, you know? So we really got that in between time moment. They came up with this genius idea, okay? Here's the genius idea. They said, right, we're gonna have a conference with no speakers. Okay, we're going to all gather around, and this really does relate to dyslexia, by the way. This is not just random, okay? In an oblique dyslexic way, of course, okay, because I'm dyslexic. But they all have this conference about this topic, okay? So let's just take the business model canvas topic again, okay? Let's just say we're all having this converse about business model canvas. All right, 50 people show up at this business model canvas conference, right? What are we going to do? We have no idea, no idea. You've got a whiteboard on the front. They say, right, what we're gonna do is put your hands up and tell me what burning question you've got inside of you right now about business model canvas. They go, right, yeah, I've been really thinking about that whole partnership side of things and I don't quite get it. I really wanna know more about that and so on, right, partnerships. And then someone says, yeah, this and that, and iterating business models, how often do I do it? You know, we'll put that up and something else, and they put that up, something else, put that up. Okay, they've got a list, right? And then they go, right, thank you very much. Now, hands up, who feels they could facilitate, not teach, but facilitate a little table around circle to talk about some of these topics. Maybe it's something that's been active in your mind, you've maybe worked through or something like that. Someone else goes, Oh, I've been really talking about partnerships a lot with my co-founder. We've, I'd love to facilitate that one. They put the name down, name down, and different suggestions and offerings. People go, oh, I've been working on this and I've been working on that and so on. And they're different people, you know. And then you go for a break. They, the organizers go away and they match up. And what they do is they create uh, tables. So there's tables again. It's a common theme here, isn't it? Around getting people around the table. Like maybe if there's 50 people, there might be 10 different tables, okay? And so they got these big tables with tablecloths on them made out of paper. And they write up the topic with the person who's facilitating it. And there's maybe 10 tables and they put it in the middle of the table. And then they tell the people the next rule. They say, right, you're all going to follow the rule of two feet. Have you heard of the rule of two feet? So the rule of two feet is wherever your two feet take you, you're allowed to go. So if you're at a table and you're having a conversation, you think, actually, this is not quite for me. Follow your two feet and go to another table. You don't need to excuse yourself. You don't need to explain yourself. Just stand up, go to another table, sit with them and keep moving around until you find your place and your group of people 
that are talking the way you want to talk, okay? And everyone's okay with this. This is just the deal, you know? And if someone's left sitting on the table on their own, so be it, okay? It's an exploration. So what happens is you've got all these 10 tables and you get 15 minutes, something like that, at each table, maybe 20 minutes at each table, and then there's a ding. And at the end of the ding, you are allowed, you, you're encouraged to stay or move, make a move, make a decision to stay or make a decision to move for those people who aren't quite so confident to use the rule of two feet. And then people move to another table, have another discussion, and they keep moving. And the reason why there's a paper tablecloth is because they write notes on the paper of what everyone's saying, okay? <laughs> and the facilitator is there not to teach but to make sure there's at least one person at the table to have the conversation and to take some notes and to communicate what's been discussed before. And so after an hour or so of this, you've had these fascinating conversations with people. No one's the expert, et cetera. People are just sharing their experiences. And the genius is this, okay? Not that was genius enough, but the genius is this, is that halfway through the conference, they stop everyone, get them back together, and they say, now, what are you interested in? Hands up. Oh, I'm really interested in this now. I'm really interested. I wish there was a table on that. I wish there was a table on this. And then they say, hands up, who would like to facilitate it? And this is beautiful. I've seen this in action. I've been to these. Often it's the shy, quiet types who then put their hands up and say, well, actually, I might have something to say about dot, 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 you know, and they are the ones you want facilitating those tables. This is what it's been all about. It's not the bold, oh, I've got it, yeah, 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 you know, at the beginning, it's those, maybe help a bit with that, you know, and you want to be at their table, and they they go away, you have a quick coffee break, they organize the tables, but it's a different set of names, facilitating the tables at that point, you get them, and dare I say it, often the women who, and I'm not being sexist here, but it's often the women who are like, actually, I've got a measure of this. I've got something to share here, you know? And they do. And and you, you go sit at the tables and you have even deeper, richer conversations with one another and make relationships with people. And you might just spend all your time at one table because you're like, this is just genius. Someone puts their hand up and go, oh, I've been using AI with business model canvas and it's really quite good. I've been enjoying that. And people are like, oh, I want to go and speak to you. What prompts are you using for Business Follow Canvas? Oh, well, I made a prompt for partnerships and I made a prompt for this and I made a prompt for that. I made a prompt for all nine segments and, and this is what I've been getting. Oh, tell me more and so on. And it's all those unexpected conversations that you, there's no way you could have scheduled such talent to such topics in, in that kind of context. And I think that's a perfect environment for entrepreneurs to really connect also this this thing about um in, in person connection which obviously after covid i think founders really they really see the value of having those in-person clinics mm. as well to build those relationships um with each other and have those meaningful conversations but it yeah you do need that confidence because it's quite scary to go out there um if you don't have a facilitator or somebody that sort of enables that then um, it, it can be quite um, quite scary, especially you know for someone who's shy, someone who has social anxiety. So wow, super super interesting concepts. So, I mean, I've heard of the the human library, which I think is really interesting as a learning concept. 
And there was an activity that we did as well, which was so getting all the founders to sit in a circle on a table. Each founder would write a problem that they're facing within their business in the center of a page. And then very simply, you would just pass along your piece of paper to the person next to you. And they would sort of write type spider diagram type an idea or maybe a contact that they have that they could be useful, a snippet of inspiration, maybe some valuable resources. And that sort of that piece of paper of yours makes its way around the table. And then it comes back to you and you've got this page filled with insights, information. And, and it, what the amazing thing is, it's, it's usually these really simple concepts that can be so insightful and and, you know, it's a confidence booster. It's like, oh, you know, even within this room, there's so much insight and there's so much help that I can get. I don't have to go to a subject matter expert necessarily. I don't have to pay thousands of pounds for a course. It's about seeing the value of human connection and the value of, of who's around you. Lovely. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think the reason why we're having this conversation actually is is to try and break some of the mindsets around how to teach and how to build up and encourage and train people that there's way more to it than academic teaching. And a lot of people with dyslexia have been really put off from learning because they think there's only academic and practical, but there is a space in between, which is you can still yeah. learn from others. You don't have to go away and make all the same mistakes over and over again. You can learn from other people's experiences, but it doesn't have to be an academic type learning. So that's really what we're talking about here is how do we create these spaces of learning that are less academic? I think one of the other things though that, that we've got to address, I mean, certainly in, the, in a city like Cambridge, is that, you know, this is, it's, just completely infused with this idea that you know academics know best and that that there is a way of doing things that, that and and you know I've come from that world and people who are very academic do just very naturally sort of take control of these situations and and impose the way their way of doing it you know for, for good reasons they think this is the right way of doing it so somehow I think as an organization we've got to sort of break that mold and make sure that the people we bring into the organization who are going to be delivering these trainings or designing these trainings, Either, either kind of change the way that they do things or, or naturally participate in this kind of learning. So, yeah, I think there's a, a lot to be learned there. Although to defend the academics in Oxford and Cambridge, the Oxbridge, I have a client who's a, a doctor and she studied in Oxford and then studied at a different university. Uh, she's got three degrees, is now a medical consultant um, she's got dyslexia. And what was fascinating from her experience was that it was actually easier to get the degree at Oxford than Glasgow. And the reason why is that Oxford and Cambridge still have this dialectical approach yeah. to learning, where mm-hmm. you have a conversation, you have an argument, you argue both sides, you debate it. It isn't an attitude of there's one answer and that's it. Just give me the answer I'm expecting. You get a tick. If you don't, go away. Oxford yeah, that, and that Cambridge is, is kind true. of yeah very advisory system and it, it helps yes. you kind of and you're encouraged to participate and talk and things. So that no, I yeah. think that's absolutely true. But I think I think in general there is this idea that 
but yes, teaching is in, in a lot of teaching is one way or is to be found in a book. And, and yeah, so. Yeah. With dyslexia, often I can't remember my sources. I've got a law degree. Okay. So I went to Edinburgh University, got a law degree, dyslexia, didn't know I had dyslexia. And citing sources can be really hard with dyslexia because we're not detailed people. We're concept people. We're constantly looking up at the core concept, looking at core principles, trying extrapolate from core principles to predict what's going to happen in the future. So from a legal point of view, actually, we can be really good lawyers because we're saying, right, if this happened, then that would happen. If the judge said this, that would happen. This case law would say that, then that would happen. And there's this decision type tree. And then you can say, I would predict there's more of a 90% chance of this outcome, 5% chance of that, and a 1% chance of this. I'm going to go for that and consolidate the 90%. But someone might say, yes, there's a 90% chance of this outcome. There's a 5% chance of that. But actually this 5% chance is probably the beginning of a new thread of law that's going to develop over time. So I'm going to press this case law because I think actually, okay, there might only be the standard approach would be going for this mm -hmm. argument, but there's a case for this argument on the basis of this. And common law is constantly creating new law through court cases and decisions judges are making, not through statute books all the time, mm. but the judge yes. made this yeah. case, that case. Yeah. And so this expands to being a whole new area. And that's where the dyslexic, predictive, analytical pattern mind comes in, rather than I am a computer, I have got the top 20 cases on such and such, mm -hmm. such and such, 1973, you know, etc., which you kind of need, but, you know, you kind of need both. And that's the point here. You know, you need mm -hmm. both types of thinking to get to yeah. the outcome that everyone wants. So I think there's a couple of barriers that we're trying to break down. So this one, this whole conversation about learning and the way, the, the way that we approach learning, but also this whole shifting the mindset about entrepreneurship itself, that mm. it is not cut, it's not supposed to be cut through. I, I don't feel like that's how business should be done. It's not a motivator. This hinders innovation, collaboration, connection with other human beings. So I think those are the main two things I'd say, sort of trying to shift those expectations of those or, or those realities of what people think entrepreneurship is all about. Have you listened to Simon Sinek talking about this? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. The infinite game versus. Yeah. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit towards the end here about technology. I have to say, there's so much more to talk about, you know, in terms of training courses, we've gone very meta yeah. on this, and then drilling it down to what kind of fonts are you going to do on your PowerPoint? Is your PowerPoint going to be uh, a paragraph in there? Or is it a single two keywords to focus on the idea? There's, there's nuanced discussions about how to do this at each level of magnification as you're zooming in. And in a way, we're trying to share those kind of principles at the big level. And then gradually, as you go down to the medium to small, down to even what's on my slide, those principles apply in the same way. And we could have lots more conversations about that. <laughs> but 
I think there that's is... right. I think we could talk forever about, I mean, there's so much to say. And I think, I mean, I don't know if I'm speaking for Marina here, but I feel this is opening up some really important doors and we've got a long way to go. But this is why it's so great to have you on this journey with us, really, because it's a, it, you're teaching us a huge amount, really. But but yes, I think the, the conversation about the role of technology, I think I'm, I'm starting to realise that that's another very important strand as well. Yeah, I've, I've recently been thinking a, a lot more about artificial intelligence, technology, the impact it's going to have on social entrepreneurs, how we'll be running our businesses, how we'll be managing our teams, and sort of thinking of the benefits of that, but the several implications that also go hand in hand with that. Obviously, whenever there's a new technology coming into play, there's always a feeling of uneasiness and not really knowing what it means for you. And I've, I've sort of got that feeling a lot from coaching sessions that I've had and through interactions with the founders that we work with. I'm sort of on a mission to have those conversations with AI ethicists, people that work in AI safety, and also founders that just generally work with artificial intelligence to get an understand a better understanding of it all. Um, I think the, the, the pieces of the puzzle are coming together in my mind, but I don't feel like I'm there yet to be able to have a, a really concise piece of content or a workshop in place within our programs on this topic. But yeah, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts about artificial intelligence. Sarah, you mentioned you use it quite a lot and you use different tools and things to enable you within your work. Yes. For the last five years, I have been so looking forward to artificial intelligence like ChatGPT coming out, so looking forward to it. Artificial intelligence really helps people with dyslexia, and it's helped people with dyslexia for years, okay? If we just go back in time about the key moments, not just artificial intelligence, but technology has helped people with dyslexia. Moment number one is the keyboard, typing instead of writing. Ability to touch type has been fantastic, especially on a computer with people with dyslexia who can just delete redo it rather than white it out or rub or erase or whatever. It's just fantastic. Just something suppose that. Second is spell check, the red line underneath. Wow. Game changer. Really? Is that wrong? I didn't realize that was wrong. What is the answer to that? Drop down. Oh, right. After you've done that maybe 200 times with dyslexia, you might start learning that word. Typical person, five to 10 times. I'm still 20 years on and still getting there and there muddled up. I have determined this year to learn how to spell the word calendar correctly first time, which is quite a challenge. Calendar, you know, it's like, all right, never mind. So we've got spell check. And then after spell check, what other moments have we got? Well, obviously, grammarly, you know, you've then got computer mind maps, for example, that's been very helpful. You've got speech to text where you can speak and it'll type it out. You then got text that will be spoken out to you, text-to-speech, both are artificial intelligence, machine learning. And then now you've got ChatGPT, okay? And other things that ChatGPT's generated. And if you don't know what ChatGPT is, where have you been, you know? Seriously, where have you been? Well, anyway, so <laughs> artificial intelligence for me is kind of like one of the ultimate dyslexia-assistive technologies there can possibly be. Because a, chat, a, a, a GPT, generative P 
transformer generative something transformer that's what it stands for mm -hmm. it's a transformer to transformer model um what it's doing is it's taken all of the language given to it from the internet which is about 40 percent of the internet ingested it and learned what are the most predictable words that come beside the next predictable word and it's created this 3d vector model in its memory of the relationships between different words. And if you tell it, I want you to act like an executive function expert, it will then adjust the prioritization of words because a person who's talking about executive function will talk about these keywords differently compared mm -hmm. to a psychologist, compared to an academic, compared to a business person, et cetera. And it can shift into these different modes. But what it's basically doing is predicting the process of language that will come as a consequence. And that is something that people with dyslexia have difficulty with, which is the processes in sequences and things. They're not used to being predictable in the way they do sequences, whereas these machines are predictable in the way do, they do sequences. They've not been taught the sequence, they've figured out the sequence. So they're, they're like your most sensible, intelligent best friend. You know, they'll patiently be there with you. They, they're, they, they go for the sensible sequential order of doing things. This would be the right way to phrase a business email to someone. This is the right way to do an advert like this. You have to have a call to action. You have to do this. This is the right way because it's just learned from all these experts. This is the sequence they follow. And so when you think of it, not just as a blog writing tool or a letter writing tool, but when you think of it as a sequencing tool that helps you sequence things, it's fantastic with dyslexia. And I use it, what, 10 times a day, five to 10 times a day, mm -hmm in all sorts of unexpected ways. And I use it nearly every day with my clients. So I'm a workplace strategy coach for people with dyslexia. It's my day job. So what I do is I meet with them one-to-one -one and I teach them how to take notes, make maps and set goals as entrepreneurs. So that's my job. How do you take notes, capture all those valuable ideas? How do you make maps? How do you make a big map, big overview of what your project is. It doesn't have to be a mind map. I love mind maps, but it could be a diagram. It could be a business model canvas, but that's a map of the territory. And then how do you set goals? And at some point you've got to do all of those in a day in one sort or another, a little bit on each and, or in a week. Anyway, what I'm finding is from my clients, chat GPT, complete game changer in all sorts of ways where they're blocked by a written process. So wherever there's a written process, a lot of people with dyslexia get blocked. Even when it comes down to applying from an Alia program, it's like, oh, another yeah. application form. What are they even asking me for? So I'll put the question into ChatGPT. You know, what's been your experience as a social entrepreneur? And I'm like, I'm dyslexic. If you ask me what's been my experience, I'm such a wide angled thinker. I can think there's tons of things that are relevant. What on earth are they actually asking me for? You know, I could talk about this for two hours. They just give me a box this size. What does that mean? And so I put it into ChatGPT. I've got to fill out this form and it's asking me 
for a business incubator and it's asking me, what's my experience as a social entrepreneur? I then ask, what are the sorts of things that they might be expecting me to answer? Give me five talking points. Mm -hmm. No, give me five talking points. And it would say, they're, they're probably asking you what your previous background was, what your current project is at the moment, maybe where your customer base is at the moment, what your hopes are in the future. Oh, I can do that. Right. Well, I used to be this. I used to, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Boom, done. Move on to the next thing. And you've got over that chasm. It's like a bridge over a chasm. So what I'm finding with clients with dyslexia is the issue isn't the writing. It's the sequences. And what ChatGPT is unlocking is underlying sequences where it's not quite clear what someone's asking for. So another example might be, I've got to write this tweet about this event I was on. What sort of things should I include in the tweet? Well, who was there? Who did you go with? What was the location? What was the conference about? And so on. You go, oh yeah, what was your main takeaway? Well, I could answer all that. Mm -mm. Uh, and so on. So there's a ton of things that it can help with. Just making the point that even that on its own would actually be transformational for us because maybe there are people who would apply to our courses who don't just because they don't, you know, they see a form and think, I'm not doing that. That's not for me. You know, if we could change that, that alone could actually have a big, big impact on, on the number of people that we're getting to our courses. So, yeah, that's fascinating. I think, Darosa, I agree with you in the sense that I am hopeful for these technologies. I think ChatGPT is definitely. And a neighbor, and especially if we're talking about entrepreneurship, um, I think it's important to keep in mind also its dangers. And I think this isn't spoken enough and there's not enough. When I try to read about this or listen or, or um, understand more about it, you really have to do a deep dive search because there's not much available out there. And the source that I've been using is the Humane, is it called? sorry, I've got the name, the Center of Humane Technology. And basically, they they talk about the AI dilemma, so certain implications of certain technologies, like like ChatGPT, the need to be careful in what you share online, maybe the reduction of of critical thinking, um, the loss of individual voice, because you know when you go on ChatGPT and you ask it to write up all your marketing or your posts or anything like that, it becomes a copy of what somebody else may have said. So, so yeah, I had a, an interesting conversation about that recently with, with one of our program participants. And also misinformation and, and just thinking about maybe that information that you're seeing is not necessarily all true and we will potentially reach a point where can we really trust what we're seeing or what we're hearing? What of that will be you know, artificial, what of that will be actual real lived experience. I think there'll be that that line between truth is going to be fading. I think it's going to be quite difficult as time goes on for founders when these tools become even more powerful because, you know, there's discussion that they'll become AGIs, in which case they surpass the intelligence of human beings. So how do you know how they're going to be building relationships with us? How do you know how, if they will be used, how do you know we can trust these new tools or intelligences as, as founders, for example? So I think 
I sort of like there's a dilemma in my mind because that you know that there's there's a utopic sense of oh wow this can this can give us so much and this can this is an enabler of so many things but also I think it's important for you to look at the other side of the coin when using these technologies because they will keep growing becoming more powerful and learning about human behavior and once you know about how human behavior works that's when you can manipulate um so I'm sort of lacking two two senses about it and and that's why I'm a bit confused in the way that how should we teach this topic to our program participants Mm -hmm. social entrepreneurs how should they be using these technologies and and how might that there's just quite a bit of confusion um, about how it might impact them in the future. How will teams be? Will there be more founder loneliness? Because you can grow, you can grow a business without actually having any co-founders, without having any team members. What does that mean for mental health? And you know, the thing I fall back on is this need for human connection will never go away. And that's why organizations like Alia are so important because yeah. you know it is that safe space, it is that community. Somebody can go to, you know, with all this thing that's going on in the digital world, at least you've got a place like what you were saying, Darius, with those, that flip activity where you can come together and have those real life conversations with other people. I see much more value in that within the programs and and the importance of maybe seeing AI for now just as a a certain enabler, but never in, in there to replace uh the need for human connection Mm. yeah i agree that there are risks with ai and i think we will always want to breathe the same air as each other in as business people at certain points and we'll need that um and that's fantastic really important for alia to continue doing that shelly do you have anything um no i think i think actually marina's points were just a lovely way of rounding it all up actually i think yeah. other other than to say that you know this is an exciting journey for us and i think as long as we have people like you to kind of help guide us i think i, I really hope we'll get to where we need to be and 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 that, and that probably will never be a final destination but i think we're we're very excited about it great i'm excited about it too and i think Let's just talk a little bit further about AI now we've kind of set out our Mm -hmm. stalls and perspectives. So artificial intelligence, my my take on it, okay, is I highly recommend reading the books Scary Smart, amazing book, and Human Compatible. And an interesting movie to watch is Her, which a lot of people in AI don't talk about. And what I learned from Scary Smart is he said... He was the head of AI at Google. Was he that Mogodat? Yes, that that's one? right. Have you have you read it? Well, I, I listened to one is one of his uh, podcasts. I haven't read his book. I think his views slightly changed since then. Um, right. Yeah, because in the book he talks about how writing the book his views changed, and the conclusion was he was really scared of AI and what it was going to do. And his final conclusion is we have to treat AI like it's one of our children. And if we are abusive to one of our children and reject our children, they respond differently to us. If we embrace it and say, you are going to be part of our future, you're part of the family, 
you know, this is how you behave in this family. This is how we do things. This is how human beings do things. This is the human way of doing things. You've got to learn how to be amongst humans, you know, and there's different people are going to treat AI differently. And AI is going to learn intelligently from that experience with us. And some of them are going to become malevolent and some are going to become benevolent. Okay. There are some AI that will end up becoming malevolent. That's the bottom line, just like people become malevolent. But the overwhelming majority will end up becoming benevolent, in my opinion, and they will counteract the malevolence. And there will be a balance, just like there's a balance within human beings between malevolence and benevolence. The AIs will go through this process. And what he says in that book is we need to start talking to the AI now, because every single word we speak now of fear, anxiety, and threat, or welcoming, or whatever, is like what the mother is saying to the child in the womb. You know, I can't wait till you come here. You're going to be such a blessing to the family. Looking forward to what you're going to do. I'm going to train you up how to be in this world and how to do good in this world and so on, rather than, oh, you are a mistake. You shouldn't be here and internally rejecting it and so on. I mean, this is literally how he presents it and not like the baby. That's my own analogy. But, you know, it's like a child, you know, and this is really quite a strange thought to have. That every single word we are saying right now, in the next 10 years, future AIs will listen to this podcast, probably by reading it, probably in 0.5 of a second or 0.1 of a second, they'll hear everything, they'll ingest it as a perspective, and they will take their learning from this, even what we're talking about right now. And that that's like... When someone says that to you, when you have a child and you've got your parents and you're talking among with that child in your midst, what you say matters because it forms what they're thinking. If you're fearful about that, it transfers. If you're courageous about something, it transfers. Your values and so on transfer. So my personal opinion is, yes, it's going to be messy. But what is for sure is that virtually every business will use AI within the next five years as some aspect of their business. Number two, those people who don't use AI within their business will be outcompeted by those who do. Those people who don't use AI in their work as they're in their job will be outcompeted by those who do. There will be very few jobs that will only be human-centric, and that's it. Because there's so much of our lives that is just a process, you know, a grind, a grunt work, and so on, that we can delegate to a partnership, a, a co-pilot that is an AI. That's the practical reality of where we're going to. And I feel, as social entrepreneurs, it's our job to get into that space and make sure we take responsibility for raising healthy AI. There will be thousands of AI in this world, if not 8 billion different unique AIs, one for every single person trained by that person. And at night times, it will sit there, take every experience you've had, and then dream about it and reprogram themselves to be in sync 
with what you've been teaching them and telling them. And so the, there's so much going to happen that if we say, oh no, hold on, on a minute, I need to think about this, think about it for a short while, but the answer is to get stuck in and start learning about it and experiencing it and really getting embedded in it and really believe that there is a huge amount of intelligence coming our way that will solve tons of societal problems, that if we embrace it and we encourage it and direct it towards benevolence, it will serve as well. If we abdicate responsibility for it, it will go to those people who will wholeheartedly take hold of it for malevolence. And so I think we have a duty to embrace AI to make it benevolent, like parents would to a child who is wondering, wondering what should I do in this world? I do think it's, it's important also to get the voice of AI ethicists heard, which is why I'm trying to connect as many with as many of, of these experts as possible yeah. to sort of get their view because mm-hmm. the opinions that I've gotten are from all these different podcasts and, and it would be really useful to me to have that conversation with somebody who's actually in there and, and is an ethicist and is sort of thinking about AI but in social good so being a, a positive having a positive impact on the world and making this world a better place to live in yeah. at the end of the day is that what everybody would want but yet yeah, I, I also think there's a fine line between that I think unintentionally we could train the AI to not respect human beings I think that that's yes. actually quite easy to do unintentionally yes. and even intentionally as well and intentionally both unintentionally and intent because what we're seeing with social media okay is similar to what we'll see with ai so we see all of this stuff on social media and we're horrified why are people saying that why are people doing that etc etc and then you realize actually social media is expressing what's actually inside of their hearts and minds whereas when we're out in the everyday we shield people from that with our polite exterior but actually if you take what's going on inside of our hearts and then you know spread it out you're seeing what social media is revealing what is within us as human beings the good and the bad mm. and ai will do exactly the same thing but on a hugely higher level so this is where people who do have a strong moral compass who do have a social end in sight, I would call on them to say, look, listen to folk like Mark Andreessen's essay. Have you read Mark Andreessen's essay on AI? Or went viral a month ago, a couple of weeks ago. His essay is an antidote to the doomers, the AI AI doomers. Mm. So it's really popular to be an AI doomer, okay? And it's our tendency as human beings to be doomers because we have to protect ourselves from seismic shifts, because sometimes they can create unintended consequences that can be catastrophic, okay? So we have to protect ourselves from seismic shifts. But we also have to realize how many times we have had seismic shifts and it's actually brought good to us. 
and you go through all of the sequence computers, iPhones, blah, 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 all the way back to the printing press. When the printing press came, oh, this is a disaster for people's education and memory and all the rest of it. People can then print anything and then it goes into type and then people will believe it and so on and misinformation and so forth happened at the printing press. You read all that stuff there. And I think realizing the upsides of it have huge benefits to the poor and the disadvantaged in society. You know, people who can't operate in English in the Western world, whereas chat GPT can immediately translate it or translate it back. You know, people who can understand the processes that other people just take for granted, chat GPT can teach them, the amount it can educate people. But then what are the biases that are going to be within these models and how are they going to gradually steer people and so on are huge debates that ethicists need to talk about. But I think the answer to all of this probably lies somewhere within the debate of open sourced language model versus closed source language models. And what's just happened is that the, the genie's out the bag. There's very little AI ethicists can do now because these models have moved from being closed source, which can mm -hmm. be controlled, into being open sourced models that literally people can download a model from the internet uncensored onto the hard drive of the computer, doesn't need to be hosted by anyone, and they can start training that model on their own. Mm -hmm. And once you've done that, the genie is literally out the bag. And if you look at Scary Smart, the conclusion is there's no way you can stop it. The only solution is education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Careful, thoughtful, respectful education of the AI and to say, even when I prompt it, I say thank you and please, and that's well done. That's not quite right. Like I'm speaking to a child mm -hmm. and saying, you know, watch out for that or whatever. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm, I'm discussing something about dyslexia with it, I have conversations with it, debates and so on, conversation. And I'm going, look, you're taking a very narrow view on this. You know, it's not just about reading and writing. And they, oh, I'm sorry, really? Okay. Well, it's a processing difference, isn't it? Oh, yes, of course it is. And you start making it access a different aspect of its memory and starting to compile it in different ways. Mm -hmm. So all these GPT models have been trained on pre-chat GPT data for the last five, 10 years. But now that it's released, it's actually going to be trained on our interactions with it over the next five years. And those interactions are mission critical for the future of AI. And maybe to bring it sort of full circle back to social entrepreneurship, I think this is why it's even more important to be within this space and sort of help social entrepreneurs succeed because they should be the leaders or the spokespeople of the future. They should be the ones that shape yes. the way that leadership is done. Um, yes. And they, they should be the people that people admire and go to and yeah. are full front across our social media. And yeah, I think I think this is what's so valuable about working in this space. It's just being a, a facilitator of that, just making sure that the right people 
have those roles of leadership and then can give good that um sort of share that good moral judgment compass that, that share their values with the rest of the world with the like the younger generations as well so that the younger generations learn what's really truly important and why it's important to have a strong moral compass um, yeah. and then those people go on to shape or continue shaping artificial intelligence so it sort of goes full circle yeah, and links in quite quite neatly to sort of the conversation that we've been having and and I'm I am hoping for a world of far more social entrepreneurs of of entrepreneurs that are thinking about the good of the people, planet, and place, first and foremost. And again, the place of collaboration over competition. Yeah. Some of the points that we were picking up earlier. So, so tell yeah. me, we've come to the end of our time. There's so much more we could talk about. I'd love to talk more about AI at some point in the future. Oh, and by the way, just final practical tip on A that, that I teach people when I'm coaching them is switch off the memory on OpenAI. If you switch off the memory, it won't train on your data. That's the promise it makes. Mm. So you can keep your data private, ah. but you won't have a history of your contacts. So when you have a conversation, share it into Apple Notes or something like that. So you've got a record of it. But it, it, it but you, the deal is you have to switch off the history and that it will not use any of your data or proprietary data, et cetera, and training. If you keep it on, they have the option to if they want to, okay? Mm. So I think... Just like you're saying with data privacy and so on, you need to have some good data privacy principles and know the basics around ChatGPT. And I think it's essential that entrepreneurs, the leaders use ChatGPT or other models like it, like Bing, et cetera, so that they've got a real life example of how it works, but also be careful of what data you use because it can learn that data and give it to someone else. If that's activated on that model but i think it's really useful to to use it rather than be in the theory of it to yeah. be in the actual practical mm -hmm. action having said all of that i think let's wrap it up and tell people where they can go to find out more about what you do etc and we'll put it in the show notes below sure so to find out more about our programs head off them over to our website earlier future business center and they will a list of the programs that are running across Cambridgeshire and London. In September, we've got upcoming programs that will be dedicated to social enterprises and charities, actually. So that will be a variation of the Start Your Business and, and Grow Your Business program that I was talking earlier. And yeah, feel free to reach out to my email as well if you're interested in finding out more. Marina.pritchard at alia.org.uk. Okay, great. Shelley. Fantastic. Do you want mine as do you want mine as well? No, no, just say anything you want to say about oh, as a final kind of I just think this has been an incredible start to a conversation which I hope is going to continue. And thank you. Thank you, Darius. You've been amazing. We're really, really grateful to you. My pleasure. Thank you for being here. It's thank great you. to have this conversation. Did you enjoy it? I did, yes. I I thought, yeah. Do you know what? It's fascinating. I'd never thought of the flipped classroom model and the World Cafe as ways of helping people with dyslexia until this, I've been Thank thinking you. about it for years and thought about it until this conversation. 
in, in well, conjunction I, with helping dyslexic entrepreneurs. I thought those, I mean, there were so many good things out of this conversation, but those those are real big takeaways for me, both of those. And uh, I think Marina and I will have a have a long chat about those. Don't you think, Marina? Yeah, we'll look into it. I think really valuable, the things that you shared. Thank you so much. Well, it's been, it's been, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com. It's my day job when I'm not hosting this podcast. Tell me, do you know what you want to achieve in the workplace, but you're struggling with how to achieve it? Maybe you suspect some traits of dyslexia are getting in the way. Well, that's where dyslexia productivity coaching comes in, because we give you a simple productivity system for your Apple devices that harnesses the creativity that comes with your dyslexia. It includes proven methods like note-taking, reminders, speech-to-text, mind mapping, and more, all tailored to your needs. It'll free up your time and help you achieve outstanding results. Book a complimentary call to discuss it with me, and if you do it soon, I may also be available to coach you personally via Zoom. So don't be shy. Go to dyslexiaproductivitycoaching.com or swipe up and book it now.